okay. a study of the book of Acts. And this, this study is really about the formation of the church. How did the church get started? How did they set the stage for this? Because remember, the disciples are following Jesus around, and they're, they're wondering, what's next? Because Jesus is now dead, but yet come back alive, but has yet ascended to heaven. And so he's no longer visibly present with them, and they're scratching their heads saying, how are we going to get this job done? How are we going to tell the world about who Jesus was and about what he did? How are we going to get that job done? Now, remember, right after Jesus left, what did the guys do? The apostles went back to fishing because it was the only thing they knew. Do you think fishing for them was easy? Now, I'm not asking you, did they always catch fish? Okay, did they always catch fish? I'm saying, you know, did they know how to do it and was it relatively easy for them? You know, it's hard work, and I don't want to minimize that. It was hard work, but nonetheless, they knew how to do it. They were prepared to do that. So they went back to what they knew. And so today, as we form, now what is the church? People. It's people, isn't it? People are the church. It's not the building. It's not the program. It's not the stuff. But it's the people. And if the church is going to accomplish what God intended for the church to accomplish, we need to be prepared. Prepared. So today, the title of the message is Preparation. We saw last week a little introduction to the book of Acts. Today, we're going to look at the last half of the first chapter, and we're going to find five things that we need to do as individuals, as the church, in order to be prepared to face the future. Okay? To face, not just face the future, but to be productive for God in the future. Let's take a look at the first one, how to be ready for action. Number one, do what God says. Boy, doesn't that sound trite and easy. You know, just do what God says. Now, why is it that we don't do what God says? Because it's not easy. <laughs> okay, it's not easy. I'm going to suggest many times we don't know what he said. Okay, so you can't know what to do unless you know what he said. And so today we find in Acts chapter, two, uh, Acts chapter 1, rather, verse 12, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Now, how does that show obedience? Anybody know? Who knows? Okay, if you back up to verses 4 and 5, it's where Jesus has told them, not many days from now you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to go and wait for that to happen in Jerusalem. Okay, so when you circle those words right there, the apostles returned to Jerusalem, that was obedience to what God had told them to do. Now, he instructed them not to leave Jerusalem, that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, they followed what he said. They did just exactly that. And you know what happens when you do what God says? You get what he promises. Okay, you get what God promises when you do what he said. What do you get when you don't do what God said? You don't get the promises. Okay, you don't get the blessings. You don't get the positive stuff. You don't get the pluses. So therefore, they did just what he said, and lo and behold, it unfolded just as they said, and next week we're going to see that happen. Now, there's two classes of things that we have here. When it comes to us as individuals, it's, we've already said it's difficult to do what God says, right? Yeah. Why? Why? We don't, want to. we don't want to, okay. We have to combat our want-tos, huh? Your desires determine what you do. 99% of the time, don't you think? I always do what I want to do. 
Yeah, you have to change the things you desire. That's why Jesus teaches to set your heart on the things of God. When you set your heart on the things of God, what he's saying is desire the things of God, and then you will be blessed with those blessings that you receive from following what God says. So we have to change our want-tos. Now, I would suggest to you that many times it's hard to follow God because there's some things he's already told us to do that we haven't done, that we haven't done. And so we want to bypass that, don't we? God says, I want you to quit this habit or include that habit or, or change this course or do that. And we go, okay, God, I know that that's what you said, but what else? What else? You know, give me something that I want to do. And so he says, you know, and can you bargain with God that way? Not generally. Not generally do you bargain with God. He doesn't generally reveal to you the fourth step in your journey until you've taken the first step. This thing of the Christian life is a step at a time. So therefore, if there's something in your life that God has told you to do, do it so that he can then reveal the next step to you. Okay? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? We know that passage of scripture. Now, what's the beauty of a lamp? It lights the way. Bingo, it lights the way, doesn't it? Okay, now, how do, but does it light the full journey? Nah, it just highlights the next couple of steps, doesn't it? So as you take those steps, what does it reveal? The next step, series of steps. And so therefore, you can't see the end of the journey until you start the journey. So therefore, if God has told you to do something that you have not yet done, I beg you to do it so that he can reveal to you the next step after that. Remember, Christian life is lived one step at a time. A lot of times we think that Christian life is based on our knowledge. Okay, I have to know the Bible. I have to memorize the Bible. I have to do all this stuff. No, you know what the Christian life, the beauty of the Christian life is that you can take it one step. In fact, you have to take it one step at a time. So this week, what I want you to do is I want you to figure out from God, what is my next step? What's the next thing that I need to do? Okay, what do I need to know? What do I need to do? Okay, so read the word. You know, you might read through the book of Acts as we're studying through it. You might read through that. And you might get an inclination or an impression from God, I really need to do this. You know, it's going to be interesting here in a couple of weeks. We're going to find that the people that were gathered at the church, you know what they did? They sold everything they had. And they put it in a big pile. And then people who had need had something, had a resource to come to. Had a resource to come to. Wouldn't it be cool? Now, you know, I just want you to think about this. I don't want you to do it. I don't know. Maybe I want you to do it. Okay. But just think about what would it be like if every one of us sold everything that we had and put it in a big pile? And then if I need something, I can take that. You can have that. And we can do this. And we can do that. And we held everything in common. That's not the American way, though, is it? You know, my stuff is my stuff. You know, my stuff is my stuff, and how dare you think that you could use my stuff? So we have to change the way we think, don't we? So that we change the desires. We have to change what we believe so that we can change what we want so that we change what we do. Don't just change your habits, okay? That's why, you know, we say, okay, I'm going to cut this out of my life. Okay, I'm going to quit eating chocolate cake. Okay, I'm going to just do that. I'm just going to do that. But you know what my desire is? Chocolate cake. Chocolate cake. You know, you know, true. 
And so that's my desire. Now, why do I, why do I desire chocolate cake so much? Tastes good. Tastes good. You're right. Because I believe that it tastes good, and I believe that if I ate it, I would be happy. And so, therefore, I eat as much as I can to be as happy as I can be. But what if I changed how I believed about chocolate cake? What if I said, you know, if I eat too much chocolate cake, my diabetes is going to go off the chart. My health is going to be bad. I'm going to live a real short life. Pretty soon I start doing what with chocolate cake? I start saying, ooh, man, that's my enemy. I don't want chocolate cake anymore. So it changes the way I, what I desire, okay, because I believe differently. And now how do I act? Yeah, hopefully. I probably still eat the chocolate cake. No, but the truth is, the truth is, whenever we're faced with a decision, I just admitted my worst sin to you. You know, and here's one of the things I find. How many times have I talked about chocolate cake being a big stumbling block for, my, for myself? How many? A, a billion, huh? You know, every time we have small group, you know what people want to do? They want to bring me a chocolate cake. Because I love chocolate cake and they want me to be happy. They believe like I believe. Chocolate cake will make Pastor Mike happy. And so I want him to be happy. I don't want to be grouch like he always is. But I want him to be happy. So we'll bring him a chocolate cake and we'll make him unhealthy. You know, so we need to change the way we believe, don't we? That's where change of behavior starts. By changing what I believe, it changes what I want, and then it changes what I do. So work on what you believe first. People say, why do I do this all the time? And I'll always ask them, well, what do you believe? What do you believe and who do you trust? Those two questions will go a long ways in helping you change a course of action or at least define why you do what you do. What do you what do? You do? You know, why, why do you do that? Well, it's based on certain beliefs that you have that you might not have ever discovered. So discover what you believe about what you do. Okay? Now, so there's the things that God's already told us to do that we need to obey. Now, there's some things as we learn to follow him that he's going to reveal the next step. And we need to find out what's the next step. Okay, right now, you might know your first step. God might have said, I want you to quit this. I want you to include this. I want you to change this course to here or there, whatever it might be. Do that. And then wait for the next step. Do the next step. So many times people say, you know, I don't know where God is anymore in my life. You know, that's a, that's a sad place to be. And I always ask them, where did you leave him? You know, that'll tell you where God is. And a lot of times it goes back to a place where he said, I want you to do this. And we said, no, not that. Give me something else, God. And all of a sudden there's silence. Because God said, I want you to do this. This is your next step. And we say, no. And all of a sudden, we, where did God go? Well, right there where you left him. So therefore, make sure you're following. Now, here's just a little side note for you parents. Uh, always be careful how you approach your kids in obedience. God is very specific about what he tells us, and he's very specific about what he says to us. It's like the lady, her name was Pat. She went in, and she saw her son in the kitchen, and she saw little Bobby. He was in there, and he was eating sugar out of the sugar bowl. And so, man, she let, she let into him. She said, what are you doing? And she let him have it. And she said these words, don't let me ever catch you doing that again. Parents, have you ever said that? Don't let me ever catch you doing that again. So little Bobby looked up at her and says, well, mommy, I'll try. But sometimes I don't hear you coming. <laughs> you know, it didn't change what he wanted to do. It didn't change what he, but he wasn't going to let her catch him. 
You know, and that's what she asked. She said, don't let me catch you. So be very careful about how you hear God because he's very specific. Many times when we do stuff like that, we say, don't let me catch you doing that. Okay. <laughs> Gave me permission to get by on the sly side. Okay. Be careful there. Okay. So do what God says. Number one. Number two, pray with passion. Pray like your life depended on it because it does. Your life, your spiritual life, your Christian life depends on prayer, prayer, prayer. In Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Now remember, these guys are getting ready to start this thing called the church. They don't even know what the church is. You know, they don't know that, you know, in a couple of thousand years, you know, uh, there's going to be a little church down there in Sassoon. It's going to be Marina Church. And, man, they're going to get together on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. And they're going to worship. And they're going to hear the word of God. And they're going to go out and do stuff. Uh, they never had that concept. Boy, remember, they went back to fishing. And so now, what's God doing? He's getting them prepared. So, number one, they have to do what he says. Number two, they have to pray with passion. Notice in verses 13 and 14. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Now, how many people are there? Eleven. Eleven. Now, how many apostles are there? Twelve. Twelve apostles. Where's the other one? Oh, yeah. Hmm. We're going to get to that here in a minute. Okay, so the eleven are up there. And notice in verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Okay, so there's the 11 plus a group of other people. And notice what's underlined there. And I want you to circle this. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Okay, now what does it, you know, we might think that's just kind of a hyperbolic reaction. You know, it's kind of hyperbole, an exaggeration. You know, they constantly, you know, they join together constantly in prayer. But I want you to take these individual words because A.T. Robertson said this. They stuck to praying for the promise of the Father until the answer came. They prayed until they got an answer. How many of you have ever prayed and not gotten an answer? We all have, haven't we? We pray, but we don't get an answer. We say, okay, well, maybe God will let me know later on. You know, maybe. Maybe he'll let me know. And, okay, God, I've got other stuff to do. These guys, they kept praying until they got an answer. They joined together constantly in prayer. There's three things here I want you to write down about this. Number one, commitment to pray. Commitment to pray. Many times, I think we don't hear from God because we don't talk to God. Okay? Now... When you pray, I want you to have a commitment to prayer. And circle that word prayer, because prayer is a two-way conversation. Now, have you ever dominated a conversation? You know, I do every Sunday morning. You know, I dominate. You know, have you ever dominated a conversation? Why do we do that? <laughs> because we don't want to hear. Well, we might think what we have to say is more important, or we may not want to hear anything else. We don't want to hear. And I find sometimes when we pray... That's the way we treat God. I don't want to hear what you say, God. I just want you, I, you need to know some stuff. You need to know what I need. You need to know what I want. You need to know pretty much how I have orchestrated for it to happen. And so God here, please do this, this way, and this time frame. Everything will be cool. Just trust me. You know, what kind of prayer is that? You know, it's really the opposite. So what I want you to do is be committed to prayer where you speak to God. And here's what I want you to do first. I want you to acknowledge who he is. 
Okay? Who is God to you? He's an all-loving, everlasting, uh, unconditionally loving God. I want you to let him know some stuff that you believe about him. Okay? I want you to do that. I don't want you to tell him all of your problems. I want you to ask him, what's my next step? What do I need to do to further what you're doing here in the world? I'm not going to tell you what I want you to do for me so that you can further what I'm doing in the world. And a lot of times that's what our prayer life is centered around. What we need God to do in order to promote our agenda. God, I need you to take care of the house payment. I need you to take care of my food. I need you to take care of my kids. I need you to take care of uh, my spouse. I need you to take care of whatever it is. God, take care of all that stuff because I can't. Okay, that's not a bad prayer, is it? It's a beginning. But a, a more sincere prayer might be, God, you know what I need. And I trust that what you have given me is the provision I need. I trust what you've done already. Therefore, I'm going to use the resources you give me to take care of my kids, job, the rent, the stuff. I'm going to take care of that stuff. I'm going to use what you've given me to take care of that stuff. I'm not worried about that because I know you're a faithful God who will always provide for me. I know that. But God, I want to know what can I do for you? How can I be useful in your work? How can I share with my neighbor? How can I share with my family? How can I share with the people in my workplace? How can I share with the people I rub shoulders with every day? How can I share your love with them? Okay. Uh, bingo. To do what he tells you. But most of the time, we don't hear that, what he's telling us to do. When you're sitting in the, in the, when you're at Walmart and you're checking out and you've got all your groceries and stuff, you know, are you listening for God or are you just saying, I really have to get through that. I got to get out of here. I got other stuff to do. I have places to go. I have to go to Michael's. I have to go to blah, blah, blah. You know, and I just say Michael's because I just hate going to Michael's. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, or Joanne's Fabrics. Please. Okay, you ladies love that place, but man, I'll go, but I don't like it. I don't like it. Okay, thank you. Uh, and, and some men maybe too, so I, I apologize. But nonetheless, what I'm saying is, what can I do while I'm there? And every day, and I'm going to say more than once a day, God's going to talk to you if you'll be listening. I remember one day Jared and I were at Walmart, and we're checking out, and uh, you know we just have a couple of items, and, and we're standing there in line, and this lady's in front of us, and she's taking forever, forever. You know, She's already got her stuff checked out, and all she's got to do is pay. She's forever. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, hello, you know, what's the problem? And when I said, what's the problem? God said, I'll tell you what the problem is. She doesn't have any money. And lo and behold, she didn't have any money. She had lost her wallet. She had her and her son, a little son there, probably, I don't know, seven, eight years old. And they've got all their groceries, you know, and, and they've got nothing. And so next thing I heard was, pay for her. She's got a lot of stuff pay for her I don't know if I can afford it what if I don't have enough to pay for mine pay for her and so we did we paid for her groceries and I'll tell you she said oh I really don't need this and I don't need that and I mean she was sincere her heart was broken and I said just let us pay you know I don't know how much of that was so I can get out of here or how much of it was because God said I ought to do this you know yeah I hope I didn't I hope I didn't, but you know me. So we paid for her, and, and she said to her little son, she says, thank the man. He says, thank you, sir. And I thought, you know, 
it, does, it wasn't that much money. I think it was less than 50 bucks. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't a lot of effort for me. You know, it didn't break the bank. But it was a blessing to her. And when I saw the blessing to her, I said, shame on me for being so much in a hurry that I couldn't see what was going on around me. So when you're at the line at the post office, when you're at the line of checking out at Walmart, when you're at the gas station, look around. Just look around and say, what do I have and what do people need? You know, that's a great way to live life. You know, what do I have? What do the people around me need? How can I get that to them? You know, maybe it's just a kind word. Hey, how are you doing? You know, pumping gas. And the person right next to you, pumping gas. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, how's your gas going? You know, whatever. <laughs> you know, just figure out something to say. Engage in conversation. You might find that there's something for you to do there. But we live such isolated lives that we don't ever engage people because we're afraid. Exactly. And so what do I believe? I believe that people are out to get me. I believe that they're my enemy. And so therefore I have to insulate myself against them. What if I believe I am a child of God, I have the power of God living in me, and he will protect me no matter what. If I do what he says, he'll provide the way to get it done. What if I just believed that? And then I engage people so that I can find out. Okay. Um, where am I? I don't know. Okay. Okay, so commitment to pray. <laughs> Woo, we're not having gotten very far. Number two, I want you to cooperate in prayer, okay? Cooperation in prayer. Um, now, not everyone agrees on everything, do they? But notice what it says here about the guys praying. They all joined together constantly. They joined together. They got their minds together, and they defined what was the important things for them. They thought, what are we going to do without Jesus? How are we ever going to get the job done? How are we going to live? I mean, the last three years, all he's done is taken us by the hand and led us around. And now he's with, we don't have our leader. What are we going to do? And, you know, here in a couple of days, you know, next week, in fact, we're going to get to, to where they, they have this great experience with God. And he says, here's the next step. Here's the next step. And so they were asking that. What's the next step? Not everybody agrees on everything, but everybody in this room can agree that there's a next step for our church. A lot of times when we hear messages like this, we personalize it to the point where, you know, where it's just about me. And really, what God is doing here in the early part of Acts is he's mobilizing a church to be the influence that he needs it to be in the world that, it's, that is surrounded by it. So therefore, he's saying that they're, they're getting their heads together. They're getting some common beliefs. Now, one of the things that we need to hold in common is that God has a plan for our church. God has a plan to reach people through our church, to grow our church. Now, you've heard me say it a million times. I'm not interested in having a large church. However, I am interested in having an effective church. And an effective church is a church that reaches people. Okay, so therefore, we need to make sure that we're reaching people, not concerned with how big the church gets, but also not keeping it so small that it doesn't become effective in reaching people. So... Uh, Albert Barnes said this about this passage of scripture. He said, there were no schisms, there were no divided interests, there were no discordant purposes. This is a beautiful picture of devotion and a specimen of what our worship together ought to be. It was also like a beautiful illustration of Psalm 133.1, which is right there in your program. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together and circle those last two words in unity. How beautiful. Now, you can draw a line from beautiful there, how good and pleasant. 
It is. Circle good and pleasant. And draw a line to unity. Now, the church can be an ugly place, can't it? I don't know if you've ever been a part of an ugly church, but there are some ugly churches out there. Okay? Because they are discordant and they are not unified in purpose. Okay? Our purpose is to let people who are not yet part of us be part of us. Okay? Yeah, want, want, well, yeah, they won't be if they don't want to be. Uh, but we need to provide a, a, an atmosphere where people are welcomed, where they're loved, where they're accepted, and where they get plugged in and belong. Okay? So that's, that's our unity of purpose. So, because it could be how ugly it is when God's people live together in disunity. We could write the opposite of that passage of Scripture just as well, couldn't we? It's an ugly place when people are not unified, where they believe the church ought to do this or do that and do this, and it becomes so fragmented that the church does nothing. Okay, so let's be unified in our purpose. Our purpose is to exist for the purpose of those people who are not yet part of us. That's why we exist. Now, do we get edified? Do we grow? Yeah, that's part of the purpose. We want to learn. We want to do that stuff. But the core of our, of our church is to reach people who are not yet reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Number three. Oh, no, I'm the last one here. Confess that only God can supply. What we need done in our church, only God can do. So therefore, we have to listen to him. We have to obey him. We have to follow him. But we have to also confess, God, only you can do this. So therefore, I'm going to let my body be a useful instrument for you to work through. Okay? And so therefore, I'm going to be you at Walmart. I'm going to be you at the post office. I'm going to be you at the school. I'm going to be you in my home. I'm going to be you in my neighborhood. I'm going to be consistent, and I'm going to have integrity of personhood by being the same everywhere I go, whether it be at church or whether it be at the gym, wherever I am. Okay? Number three, the third thing that they did was they believed the Bible. They believed what the Bible said. Okay? Now, a lot of times we read the Bible for entertainment. We might read it for inspiration. And we often might even think, well, I wonder if that really even happened. I wonder if that's really even true. Notice in verses 15 through 20. In those days, Peter stood up. Okay, they got together, they prayed. And now in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, and it was a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. He said, there's something unique about this book, this scriptures that we have, and we would call it today the Bible. There's something unique about that Bible because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. What he's talking about is there's prophetic places in the Bible that say, in the future, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Now, he's going to use Judas's situation. Judas goes out, he hangs himself. He actually starts by giving up the, the 30 pieces of silver. He goes back after Jesus is arrested, and he throws the 30 pieces of silver on the floor there. And the, the guys, you know, the priests, they go, oh, what can we do with that? We can't do anything with that. We can't put it back in the treasury. Okay, they couldn't put it back in the treasury. Why? Because it was blood money. It was blood money. They had given Judas these 30 pieces of silver to turn Jesus over to them to betray him so that they could kill him. So therefore, they can't take the money back because it's blood money. So what they do is they go out and they take it and buy a piece of land, which becomes a potter's field where people that couldn't afford to be buried were buried. Okay, so they bought that. Okay, now remember that. So uh, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Now, he's going to use that situation to say, you know, that was spoken of a thousand years earlier 
by King David. King David spoke about that stuff, and guess what? It happened. Now, when something is spoken about or written about in the Bible, and then thousand years later it happens, can you trust the validity of the Bible? Yeah, yeah. So therefore, put this in your memory bank. In fact, you might want to make a note about it because people say, why do you trust the Bible? Why do you think it's true? Here's one reason why you believe it to be true. Because David spoke about this thing that happened with Judas a thousand years before it happened. So let's read what it says. Okay, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. That's what, David, uh, that's what uh, Judas did. He served as a guide for those people who were going to arrest Jesus. He was one of our number. This is Peter talking. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now, here's a parenthetical statement. With the payment he received for his wickedness, remember the 30 pieces of silver, Judas bought a field. Well, Judas didn't really. It was his money that purchased it, but actually the priests went and bought it. Uh, but his, his money purchased a field, uh, and there he fell headlong. Now, this is kind of graphic, so cover your kids' ears. Okay, His body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Man, I don't know if you watch TV much, but this is better than TV. You know, if you like, if you like, if you like gore. I mean, think about this. Judas goes out, hangs himself, and I don't want to be too graphic here, but I really do want to be. Um, and so, and his body swelled up. What happens, you know, have you, anybody here seen a cow get all bloated? You know, they get huge, and you think, man, if I stuck that dude with a pin, it'd be all over. And so Judas, his body gets kind of that way, and when he fell, when the rope broke or however it fell, his body blew up. Okay, now, got quiet in here, huh? He fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. For, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms. Okay, this is King David, and now he's going back to where it was written a thousand years earlier. May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another man take his place of leadership. Okay, now that's what was written about Judas. And now, lo and behold, his place is vacant. Okay, let no, and it says here, uh, may another take his place of leadership. Now, we're going to find out here that they're going to let that, let that, make that happen. Now, verse 16 reveals that the Bible is a unique book. It predicts things that are going to happen in the future, thus giving us a chance or a reason to believe in its validity. Now, this last, verse 16, is really, if you want to jot this down, it's Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109 verse, 109, verse 8. Now, that's just one reason why you can trust the Bible. But make sure you have that in your memory bank so that when people say, why do you trust the Bible? Say, hey, check this out. This is just kind of an interesting side note. And you might take it and, and believe it too. Okay? So believe the Bible. Number four, enlist and equip more help. We need more help. Okay? Our, I'll tell you, our children's workers are dying on the vine. Uh, they're working hard. And uh, I'll tell you, it's a difficult thing for them. So if you want to be enlisted to do that, please let me know. Volunteer for that. Uh, you don't have to do it all the time, but we'll have a, we have a schedule and we can rotate and do that kind of thing. Um, but we need to list and we need to equip more help. Now notice what happens here with the disciples. In verses 20 and 23, For said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. 
Okay, now this is Peter, and he's getting ready to, to, to really uh, tell the people what needs to happen. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us, beginning from John's baptism until the time when Jesus was taken up from us. So he says, uh, we're looking for a man that was with us from the beginning, from the time that G Jesus was baptized by John until the time he left us. We need a guy that has seen all that. Why is it important to get a guy like that? He can be a witness. Now, what's a witness? Somebody that declares what they have experienced. Okay. Now, if they get some other guy that says, oh, yeah, I believe that stuff, you know, John told me. Uh, that doesn't carry as much weight as if I say, you know, here's what happened. I saw it happen. I saw it with my own eyes. So you can believe me or not, but nonetheless, my witness is true because I'm declaring to you what I experienced, not just what I heard. And that kind of has a bearing on us, too. If we want to be witnesses, we have to tell people what we've experienced, not just what we know. I think that goes a long way to saying why sometimes the church is ineffective at being a witness. Because we want to declare what we have learned, and we think that's a good witness. Well, that's not a bad thing to do. But it's, a witness is saying, here's what happened to me because of my interaction with God. Here's why I'm different. Here's where I've changed. Here's what I experienced. Here's how I got through it. Here's what makes my experience different than you know, it would be without Jesus. So therefore, our personal experience, it goes a long way. Okay, so we need, they're looking for a guy like that. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You can't, what he's saying is, if we're going to take this thing and say Jesus rose from the dead, people are going to say, how do you know that? And he's going to say, because I saw it. I saw him. I saw him after he uh, was dead, after he was buried, and after he rose. I saw him. So it was very important for the other church to have eyewitness accounts of that. Okay, so in verse 23, so they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Now we know that they pick Matthias. Have you ever thought of the other guy, you know, Joseph, Barsabbas? You know, would he feel like a loser? Oh man, I didn't make the cut. You know, I don't know. You never hear much about either one of them, uh, but it's kind of interesting. But, but the point is, is that they needed more help to spread the fledgling church across uh, the Middle East, across Europe, across Asia. They needed help to do that. And so they enlisted and recruited more help. Okay, in Matthew 9, 36 through 38, Jesus talks about this very thing. He says it this way. When he saw the crowds, and I love verse number 36. I, I just, this should shape our lives. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. How many of you have a hard time having compassion? I do sometimes. And you know when I struggle with compassion is when I fall into this funky belief that says people get what they deserve. We judge them. Eh, you know, I, I don't even know if it's judgment, but, but people get what they deserve. So if you get good stuff, oh, you must have deserved that. If you get bad stuff, oh, you must have deserved that. You know, and, so I, and I think that's kind of a basic belief of many people. People generally get what they deserve. Now, notice what Jesus says here. He had compassion. And he says this about the people because 
Here's why he had compassion. So if you want to develop compassion, here are some things that you need to do. Number one, he believed, okay, they were harassed, okay? We have to believe that people in our world are harassed. Now, are they harassed by the police? That's not important, though. Are they harassed by other people? Yeah, but that's not important, is it? What do we need to be concerned that they are harassed by? The enemy, Satan, the devil. And what does he want to do? He wants to drag them to hell with him. Okay, when I see people out there that, I, that, that need compassion, and everybody needs compassion, don't get me wrong. When I see people, what I need to, first of all, start believing and thinking, man, Satan wants to drag that person straight to hell. What a sad thing that is. Okay, so they're harassed by the enemy, and they are what? Helpless. You know, the people that we see that without Christ in our world, without, without God living in them, they are helpless to overcome that drag. Okay? They're being dragged down by the, by the enemy, and they are helpless to overcome it on their own. There's nothing they can do to counteract that situation. So therefore, I, my, my heart softens for that. Wouldn't yours? These people don't deserve that. They didn't, well... You know, deserve. Deserve really doesn't enter into the picture here. But, but I say, you know, they could have better. And therefore, God wants them to have better. And man, they're helpless to get there. And so therefore, it comes to the third thing here. They're like sheep without a shepherd. What do they need? They need a shepherd. They need somebody to lead them to still waters. They need them to lush pastures. They need them to, learn, to, to feed at the feet of Jesus. They need somebody to help them get there so that they can obtain the benefits of it. Okay, so now, there's people out there that need compassion. Now, can any one of us show compassion to the entire world? No. Let's be honest. No, we don't have the resources. No. We want to think we can do all things through Christ's strength, and that's true, uh, and we could, to a certain degree, you know, give money and do all that kind of stuff and help people throughout the world. But we need more people. So he said to the disciples... The harvest is plentiful, okay? There are people out there that we can show compassion to. That's not a problem. There are plenty of those people. Now, what's the problem? There's not enough shepherds. So he says, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest. And who's the Lord of the harvest? God's the Lord of the harvest. He says, ask him, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Okay, compassion works miracles, Compassion changes people's lives. Therefore, pray that God would send people out. Pray that he would send you out. Pray that he would send me out into the world around us to show compassion for people that are helpless, that are being drugged down by Satan. Okay? So we need to enlist more help. We need to equip more help. That's why when we come together on Sunday mornings, I hope you get something that you can take with you during the week and say, man, I can make a difference here. You know, it doesn't might, might not be monumental, but I can make a difference in this lady's life in front of me who lost her wallet and has no money. I can make a difference. So therefore, make a difference where you can. Number five, I want you to accept God's assignment. Okay, accept God's assignment. The next step he has for you is his assignment for you. In verses 24 through 26, therefore, uh, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Now, remember, they have two guys they're trying to choose from, you know, Joseph called Barsabbas, and then there was Matthias. He says, show us which one of those. 
And so they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two people you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where, where he, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is kind of an interesting phrase, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Yep. Hmm. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Now Matthias now has to say, okay, I accept God's assignment. I'm going to be a witness. I'm going to go out and I'm going to help this fledgling church start. I'm going to help it spread. I'm going to show compassion to people. I'm going to love them. I'm going to look around me and see where I can be of assistance and of help and of influence. I'm going to be, have my eyes wide open. So therefore, I accept that assignment. Now, how do you accept your assignment? The very same way. You say, okay, I'm going to look around. Today, when I leave church and if I go to lunch or if I go home or if whatever I do, I'm going to be looking around to see where can I be of influence? What can I do? How can I help? How can I bring God's love into this situation? I'm going to do that. Uh, and, and in conclusion, I just want to read this story to you. It's a story by Max Lucado uh, about uh, a man named uh, John Eglin. He was a tailor, and he was a deacon at his church in 1850. And in 1850, people walked everywhere. It was in the dead of winter. And he uh, got up one morning, and it was snowing outside, and it was freezing, and he thought, you know, man, I just think I'll stay home. And then he felt convicted, and he says, no, I want to be found faithful. I want to be found faithful. So he got up, got dressed, walked six miles to church in the snow. Walked six miles in the freezing cold, got to church where there were 13 people, 12 regular members, and a visitor, a guest. And he got there, and it was so cold, and so many people had stayed home that uh, there was only 12 of them and this one guest. And, and the, even the pastor couldn't make it because the snow was so heavy. And so he's there, and they got together, and they said, well, you know, we might as well go home. The pastor's not here. Never go home because the pastor's not there, okay? So he said, no, no, we came all this way. I walked six miles. I'm not going home so soon. Um, I walked six miles. We're, we, no, we're going to have church. And so they said, well, you know, what are we going to do? Who's going to preach? Well, it so happened that John was the, the deacon of the church and the only one there. And so everybody smiled and looked at John and said, I guess since you want to have church, I guess you're going to preach. And so he did. And he preached from Isaiah and, and, and for about 10 minutes. And, uh, and in, in his message... Um, he talked about, uh, look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else, from Isaiah 45, 22. And he preached about that, and as he concluded, he, he looked, he closed his message by looking at the young visitor. He was a teenager, a 13-year-old kid, and he said, young man, look to Jesus Christ. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Look. Look, young man, look now. And it so turns out that it turned out to be just exactly what that 13-year-old kid needed to hear. And he did. He looked to Jesus. And now that young 13-year-old uh, has Jesus in his life. And that's how uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon came to know Jesus Christ. Thousands of people were affected by his ministry. He's one of the well-known uh, pastors of the late 1800s. He was, the, in fact, the preeminent pastor of the late 1800s because one deacon said, I'll be faithful and I'll do the next step that God's given me to do. And from that ripple effect, 
Thousands of lives were changed because of Charles Spurgeon. He, he, he obeyed, he followed, he took the next step. And I'm going to ask you this morning, what's your next step? You know, maybe it won't be that you're the most notable person in history, but you might be affecting the next notable person in history, just like John Eglin did. And so I ask you today, and in fact, I plead with you, learn to take the next step. And when you take the next step, take the next step. And when you take that step, take the next step. Always, always, always be defining for yourself what's God's plan for my next step. And if you don't have that clearly defined for you today, I want you to do these five things so that you can hear from God so that you can plan your next step.